Welcome, and thank you for joining the Unbiased Label Podcast with your host, Zara Karutz. On this podcast, we have real talk meant to inspire change with thought-provoking conversation at the intersection of industry and academia focused on fashion and culture. This episode is a conversation with the amazing London-based fashion curator, Scott Shivani. You might know Scott from his YouTube channel called Fashion And, where he discusses all things fashion and history related. In this episode, Scott and I talk about the fashion show that transformed fashion history, also known as the Battle of Versailles. This now famous competition was a display of fashion between French and American curated roster of five fashion designers on each team. The gala fundraiser is described by Robin Gavon in her book called The Battle of Versailles as follows in her prologue. On November 28, 1973, the world's social elite, men in dashing tuxedos and women dripping with diamonds, gathered in the majestic Theater Gabriel at the Palace of Versailles. Originally conceived as a publicity stunt and fundraiser for the dilapidated French landmark, the Grand Divertissement at Versailles had become an international fashion extravaganza, bloated with pomp and passion. Style writers and society columnists, royalty tycoons, diplomats, and politicians, the creme de la creme of the jet set, stagehands, set designers, burlesque dancers, ballet stars, drag queens, glamorous models, fashion choreographers, and one Academy Award-winning triple threat all watched in eager anticipation as fine kings of French fashion faced off against five unsung American designers. By the time the spotlight dimmed and the curtain came down on the evening spectacle, fashion history had been made and the industry had been forever transformed. In this conversation, Scott and I talk about this monumental event that changed the global landscape of fashion by cementing the switch from the era of haute couture to the global explosion of ready-to-wear fashion. If you love an underdog story and a celebration of diversity, then this conversation is for you. Do enjoy. Hello, Zara. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm great. Just to give a little bit of background about you, Scott, you are a fashion curator. You're also a fashion historian. You yeah. have your YouTube yeah. fashion and. So if you haven't seen that, everyone needs to check out that YouTube channel of yours because you do a really great job of talking about interesting things related to diversity and in a very inclusive way. So that's why I'm a fan of yours and your YouTube Thank channel. You. So. Thank you. Yeah, it's really important. The whole inclusivity thing is really important. You know, fashion is something that affects all of us, no matter where we come from, our upbringing, our backgrounds, it affects every single one of us because we live our lives in it. 
and no one I believe is exempt from making a choice where fashion is concerned because every outfit whether it's you know a pair of sweatpants or a a couture gown we make the decision to wear that you know what I mean we, we we make that decision to dress our bodies in that particular garment inclusivity is really important it's about making sure that it's accessible to everyone and that's from you know people who know nothing about fashion to people who know a lot about fashion and it's just giving you know I see my channel as a like a springboard a starting off point for people to you know, any level to tune into and say, wow, that was interesting, or, you know, I want to read more, or, you know, if they are, a, you know, a fashion aficionado, then they can say to themselves, that was a great little kind of, yeah, I knew that already, but it was put together well, and it was a nice little refresher kind of thing. So yeah, it's really important that everybody feels welcome represented and that there's something for them in my channel and the content that i produce yeah and you do a great job of that there's a lot to unpack in fashion i mean it's really a powerful powerful medium in so many different ways don't you think of course it is i mean it's integral to our social history you know it's 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 tastes and fashion and events that have happened in history revolutions wars it's all been reflected in fashion and fashion has been a a tool for people to communicate go back all the way back to the tudor period where you had sumptuary laws where particular fabrics particular colors were only allowed to be worn by royalty nobility aristocracy that then presented this image of oh that person's wearing purple for example they must be rich and it's a rich part of of social history and it touches every part of our life i think the field of dress history at the moment and fashion theory has it's really enjoying a a a really kind of fruitful period at the moment and it's it's a discipline in itself now which is great Mm -hmm. it's being taken seriously well it's it's fantastic it's interdisciplinary in a way where I of think to your point, it, it was fashion always fell back into fashion historians and it was the history of dress. It was treated almost like a costume or a material object. It fell into history only. A lot of the first fashion historians were actually art historians. Right. If you look at someone like James Laver, for example, when you read his work, you, you'll probably read it and think, wow, this guy is crazy. but he was one of the first fashion historians and he came from an art historical background right when it was frowned upon dress history back then art history was obviously the pinnacle you know if you you studied art history it was a proper serious academic topic and something like fashion was looked upon as you know I mean I I don't want to say yeah exactly it was frivolous Frivolous. and it was and it was quite the 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 attitude was misogynistic because it was men looking at dress history and going oh that's to do with women and it's frivolous and it was it was really kind of reflective of its period that attitude of like yeah you know fashion history is below everything else you know because it's it's frivolous it's feminine it's this it's that I knew that, but I never made the connection to misogyny before because somehow that escaped me. But you're right about that. So in general, women have been dismissed as frivolous because they've been viewed as eye candy, objects of desire, 
almost a, a form of increasing your social standing to have a, a trophy in a lot of ways. Yeah. So women have been viewed as material objects in and of themselves is what you're saying, yeah. which I believe to be true. My next episode for Fashion and that I'm working on at the moment is Fashion and Winterhalter. And I kind of discuss this idea of ladies of the courts of Europe in the 1850s and the 1860s. They were expected to dress as an advertisement of their husband's wealth and status. Right. And regardless of whether they were a, an empress or a princess or a queen, they were still subordinate to their husband. And fashion was kind of like handed over to the women as a as this kind of frivolous kind of entity to be played with. And then it was up to the women to dress in a particular way that would basically make their husbands look better. <laughs> well, and we see the remnants of those ideals today in all parts of fashion. Mm. We could talk about that for on and on, but the purpose <laughs> of our talk is to be inclusive and going back to that notion where looking at history from a more accurate perspective yeah. and including everybody as part of that conversation to have a more honest dialogue with history and fashion, which is why I love the Battle of Versailles because mm. it, at its core, that is what that story teaches us. Indeed and it is. I love it for that reason. We have so much to unpack and <laughs> let's just talk about it. So we're going to talk about the Battle of Versailles, which took place on November 28th, 1973 in the Palace of Versailles. And yes. really, it was an Olympic contest between the French kings of fashion, the couturiers and the institution of fashion in a lot of ways yeah. versus the Americans, which... If the French fashion couturiers were the masters, the Americans were almost like the apprentices, if you will. Um, of course, yeah. The event took place in the Royal Opera House, Versailles, which was which is known as the Théâtre Gabriel. And it's named after the architect Jacques Gabriel, who designed the theatre. And it was inaugurated in 1770 and the whole event was actually the brainchild of Eleanor Lambert who right. was a publicist an American she, publicist she was an American publicist yeah she actually came from the Midwest she came from Indiana mm -hmm. um, from a regular working class family and she moved to New York and started off as a publicist for art galleries and artists and built up her books, etc., and became quite successful. And it was an American fashion designer called Annette Simpson who had heard of what Eleanor Lambert was doing in the art world, and she decided that she wanted her to represent her. And that kind of was the start of Eleanor Lambert's transition from the artist and art gallery world into the world of, of American fashion. And American fashion at the time was based on copying French originals. Right. Each department store would send their buyers to Paris every season. They would go to the couture shows, they would go to the houses, they would buy designs from the designers and they would bring them back to America where they would put on small mini couture shows in the department stores and the designs would be copied. Right. And that's just the way that American fashion worked. There was the odd 
original designer, so to speak, but the, the, the kind of system itself was based on copying and there was no shame in buying copies. To your point, Scott, in the 60s especially, it wasn't just French fashion that women copied, but it was also British fashion because yeah. London was considered the innovators of the young and the youth. London was the youthquake, wasn't right. it? And that was a term that was coined by Diana Vreeland. And that was the swinging 60s in London, Carnaby Street. You couldn't afford necessarily the clothes of the Mary Quants and, mm. and what Twiggy was wearing, but you could buy the patterns and then you could copy those clothes at home and sew them yourselves. And that's how average, normal women could copy the fashion. So to your point, copying was considered run-of-the-mill, accepted, normal. It was part of the democratization of fashion, mm. wasn't it? This kind of copy culture. Well, now if you copy, it's considered stealing. Yes. But back then, there was nothing wrong with copying, which to us sounds like, like you just said, it's stealing. So to us, it sounds absolutely ludicrous. But the, the 50s and the 60s in America, the foundations of the industry was based on copying. Right. So Eleanor Lambert. She created the Cote Awards, uh, which uh, sadly no longer exists. She started New York Fashion Week. She was responsible for the American fashion industry so she was quite quite an amazing woman well she lived to be a hundred they called her fierce i mean she yes. really she was a strong woman she was indeed yes she was at a party and she met the versailles curator gerard van de kemp they got talking quickly got onto the subject of versailles and at the time you know in the kind of late 60s early 70s versailles was basically in ruins it's reported that they needed 60 million dollars in order to restore the palace how much 60 million dollars oh, wow. was the estimated cost of the restoration for the palace it's a huge yes. amount of money mm -hmm. it's a huge amount of money you know it's a huge amount of money now but could you imagine what? how much it was then Right. Eleanor Lambert came up with this idea that there would be this friendly fashion show between America and France, obviously with the kings of haute couture on the French side and then on the American side, you know, those kind of up and coming, not necessarily up and coming because a lot of the designers were quite well established of the five who, who took part. But it was about bringing the two worlds, the old and the new, together and celebrating it to raise money for what they saw as a worthy cause. Yeah, it was a fundraiser filled with royalty and yep. the elite or the bourgeoisie. And There was about and 700, the guest list. I think it was around 700. And as you rightly said, it was royalty, aristocracy, socialites, celebrities. Andy Warhol was there, Elizabeth Taylor. Princess Grace of Monaco, and it was Marie-Hélène de Rothschild who was the Grand High Dame. She was the one who was in charge of the guest list. Mm. And you had to be invited to buy a ticket. I wonder how much the tickets were. I know how much the tickets cost. Oh, of course you do. <laughs> the tickets cost $235. Now, $235 in 1973 is the equivalent of $1,440 um, in Today. 2021. So who, let's go through the roster of the, the U.S. team versus the French team. I, I find this interesting. The choice, e the selection yeah. of designers. 
So there was five American designers that was chosen. Well, there was Oscar de la Renta. There was Stephen Burroughs. There was Halston. There was Bill Blass. And then there was Anne Klein. And I know for sure that Oscar de la Renta and Bill Blass were clients of Eleanor Lambert's. So they were already on her books. And Oscar de la Renta, he was the kind of... He was the well-established American designer, but an American designer who had studied and learned his craft in Paris. So you would say he was probably the veteran on the team, wouldn't you say? He was indeed the veteran on the team, mm-hmm. yes. He was the he was the big guns on the team. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Anne and- Klein was uh the only female yep. in the entire competition. And she was a ready-to-wear designer. And there was a lot of controversy about Anne Klein appearing and a lot of the American designers and the French designers, they didn't want her to take part because they didn't see her at the same level. And it was part of the conditions that every French designer had to agree to the American designers that would take part in the competition. Oh. So, and Anne Klein designed... She designed sportswear and she designed modern clothes for modern women. That's right. A lot of the other designers, they really didn't want her. They thought that she was just utterly beneath them. She represented the working woman, which she did. that was a new concept that came off of the heels of the 50s where the woman's place was in the house. The yeah. 60s, the, the revolution started, women started That's working. Right. So she was part of that entire movement and social change and she knew what women wanted she was a working woman herself indeed yeah what is amazing to me about Anne Klein is at the time of this event late November she died March the following year so she she died cancer yeah she was seriously ill during the event and she actually didn't tell her assistant Donna Karen that she was ill she kept it to herself unbelievable she kept it to herself and she just got on with the job. I think she knew that she didn't have long left. And I think this for her was possibly like one of her last kind of hurrahs, so to speak. And I don't think she wanted to put a downer on it at all. So yeah, Donna Karen, who was six months pregnant at the time, she was there, you know, as her assistant and was, you know, helping her do everything. And she was completely unaware that her boss, her mentor, you know, was nearing the end of her life and was seriously ill. You know, it's a really sad, really, really sad part of the story for what was such a magnificent evening and a magnificent event in the history of fashion. When you look at it through, you know, the eyes of Donna Karen and Anne Klein, it's it's really poignant. Right, so you have Oscar de la Renta, who we call the veteran. He had the French background. You have Anne Klein, who was the only female with a female team. Bill, That's right. We have Bill Blass, who was another sort of classic glamour guy. Yeah, Bill Blass was very much kind of cafe society, you know, always had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. You know, it was all tweed blazers, very cafe society, that kind of, you know, that, that demographic. And then you have, well, do we talk about Stephen Burroughs? No, we haven't. Stephen Burroughs, he presented his first collection in 1969 and then by 1970 was um, stocked in Henry Bendel's and he, he had his own store in Henry Bendel's. Which so, is now he closed. Was, which is now closed, yeah. And he was really making waves, Stephen Burroughs. He was one of the first designers to design unisex clothing. 
back in the late 60s. And he was part of the Fire Island group. He was a kind of go with the flow kind of person. You know, it was all like kind of free love. And he was he was the young hot designer. He just won the Cote Award in 1973 and just before the event. And he was asked to take part. His clothing was designed with movement in mind. Yeah, Stephen Burroughs to me represented the time and the movement of the culture of the 1970s. So if this is 1973, he himself lived in New York. You have a a black designer who represented black culture in the sense he used a lot of African-American models and he really was fresh at the time. And part of all the social movements was feminism, also gay movements, but also yeah. black movements where black yeah. is beautiful concept. Yeah. And yeah. St- Stephen Burroughs represented the epitome of black is beautiful from his designs right. to his models to th- what was going on in the streets in New York. So he was just really fresh and modern. He, yeah, Fosco de la Renta was like the, the well-established big guns. Stephen Burroughs was the hip, young, cool, new kid on the block. What would we call Halston? Holston was the superstar. Yeah. <laughs> at this he was point, Lady Hol- Gaga of the yeah. Country. At this point, Holston was the was America's fashion darling. You know, nineteen seventy three, he launched his first ready to wear in nineteen sixty nine. He was a milliner before that. He worked in New York with Lily Dashi, who was a really well established milliner. He got to meet lots of clients, socialites, etc. He then became the director of the millinery section at Bergdorf Goodman's. And then as hats fell out of fashion, he went into ready-to-wear. And by 1973, he just sold his company right. for millions and millions. And he was moving into the famous offices next to St. Patrick's Cathedral right. on Fifth Avenue. And he was riding the crest of mm-hmm. the wave of stratospheric fame. Oh. And he was a diva. Yeah. <laughs> He would call himself Holston. You know, Holston isn't happy. You know, <laughs> he was he was an ego and a half. He really was. The seventies belonged to Holston. Let's be honest. Yeah, especially no, in he, New York. Anyone that was yeah. anyone was part of his his entourage. Yeah. girls club. The Holstonettes. That's right. The Holstonettes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that that's quite a roster. Very, and it's a diverse roster. We have a woman. We have an African-American man. We have a, a diva. We've got a lot of power players. We so do have a lot of power players here, yeah. Let's talk about the, the French. So the French designers, it was the creme de la creme of French haute couture. It was the kings of French fashion. It was Yves Saint Laurent, who by the 70s was the king of French fashion. He was the king of French ready-to-wear and the king of French couture by this stage. Um, He pioneered ready-to-wear, really. Pierre Cardin, who, again, was another major player. Pierre Cardin was part of the team who created Dior's new look in 1947. But Pierre Cardin was also a modernist in a way. This was yeah. around the time that he was obsessed with space culture. Yeah. And he was including a lot of really modernistic sort of designs. He had his perfumes. He had his home design wear business. He really was an innovator in and of himself. He was indeed. 
Yeah, he was definitely hugely influenced by the space race of the late 1960s, continued it into the 1970s, and I think it probably was part of his downfall as well. If you look at Pierre Cardin's work, as you get into like the 70s and the 80s, he maintains that aesthetic, that kind of space uh-huh. age aesthetic, but fashion changes, but yeah, his aesthetic right. stays the same. Right, and right, even right. At the, even by 1973, that kind of whole space age look is falling out of fashion by that time. Well, yeah, because the man had yeah. already gone to the moon in the 60s. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of oh. falling out of fashion. Yet Pierre Cardin, as part of his presentation, had this big rocket come onto the stage that had Pierre Cardin Paris written down the side of it. The spaceship door opened and there was a man standing in like a kind of silver Pierre Cardin suit and so he was still a big player at the time but I I wouldn't say he was necessarily still at the top of his game at that point obviously still hugely influential because he was involved in this in this event the French team was a team full of masters and traditional haute couturiers and Pierre Cardin I don't believe was Was that was not a couturier so he was considered like uh, a ready-to-wear guy versus he trained as a couturier and he did have a couture he he did do couture but he was moving very much into the ready-to-wear market and he had left you're right he had left his kind of couture roots behind and gone into ready-to-wear yeah so Um, then we have mark bowen for dior poor mark bowen because mark bowen's name was nowhere in the event or on the program oh it was all no, it was all Christian Dior. Wow. Yeah, it was all Christian Dior. It was never Christian Dior by Mark Bowen. It was always just Christian Dior. Even in the programme, it was listed as Christian Dior. Mark Bowen's name was nowhere to be seen. Poor and, Mark. <laughs> and Mark Bowen was at Dior for 30 years, right? And he was at Dior for 30 years, yeah, which is one of the longest tenures right. at, at, the, at the helm of the house. But he... Yeah, he kind of... <sighs> Christian Dior under Mark Bowen kind of it, it ended up going into this kind of safe place where it was just kind of like bourgeois women who wore it and that was it. It didn't lose its prestige because it was Christian Dior, but it kind of lost its sense of forward-thinking fashion, if that if right. that makes sense. Yeah. How would you label Engaro, Emmanuel Engaro? Well, he was he was the kind of new kid on the block as well at this point. You know, he was making waves with his bright colorful palettes his loud prints his clashing prints and stuff so he was really making a name for himself at this stage he was probably the new kid on the block at that in, in terms of the french side of things let's quickly mention that the fifth french designer was hubert de givenchy who okay. of course we all know absolutely you know legendary designer right if you look at the rosters you you mm-hmm. would think on paper that this battle of fashion if anyone's going to take it it's probably going to be france i mean wouldn't you think oh of course on paper? of course as you say you just look at the names on paper and you think it's in the bag right <laughs> right yeah it's in the bag there's no, no contest there no contest at all you've got the biggest players in french haute couture Right, it was definitely David and Goliath. Yeah, of course, that's the beauty of this story, is I that know. it is it is David and Goliath, it's the underdog, it's the rise of the, the unsuspecting, no one saw it coming. Yeah, Complete and, and, surprise. Well, I think there was a bit of an arrogance 
where you there was a huge arrogance especially on the french side yeah there was a huge arrogance going on here so what happened was the americans killed it and the french were left crying in their napkins it was a complete obliteration of a context So yeah, when the team from America arrived at Versailles, the French, they'd taken over the stage. They used all the rehearsal time. The Americans got absolutely no rehearsal time whatsoever. To the point where once the French side had finished rehearsing, apparently all the lights got switched off in the theatre and they had to beg to have the lights be switched back on so that the Americans could quickly rehearse their section. The, The French opened the event. They had Josephine Baker, who was an expatriate American who Mm -hmm. lived in Paris. So she came on stage and opened a nude leotard that was all kind of like bejeweled with crystals and this big gorgeous feather headdress. The French side, there was a live orchestra. Uh, The sets were heavy. It was all very stuffy and old-fashioned on the French side. And the French took two and a half hours They really went above and beyond to tell this sort of complicated storyline filled with all these details and extras. Yeah, it it came across as clunky and it was old fashioned. It was oldie worldie, didn't flow. Yeah, it was quite it was quite stuffy. Yeah, and it felt and old, right? It felt like it, it was an it, old established yeah. vibe of... But I think they probably did that on purpose, in my opinion. I think they wanted to really show the rich history of France as the centre of, of everything fashion. That's the, what they wanted to do. They really wanted to play on this idea of tradition, established tradition. Well... France as the centre of everything where fa- where fashion was concerned. Well, that that's sort of a, an elitist attitude because meanwhile, the whole world is changing and you have every single social revolution happening around you and the world is a completely different place. So it, it mm-hmm. felt dated instead of an homage to the past where you're maybe referencing your past, but in a new way. And by the way, if this is a battle of countries, and fashion capitals and fashion is supposed to be a, a reflection of what's happening right now. We look to fashion for innovation. We look for to fashion to be new and fresh. Yeah. That's yeah. sort of the, fa- the premise of what fashion is. This so, presentation by the French designers was, it, it was the complete opposite. It was stuck in the past. Yeah. It was outdated. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't work in their favor, unfortunately. And, and, and I don't know that even the, the fashion was showcased be through the clunky, complicated wooden set designs. Did you even see the fashion? It almost took a secondary position within the presentation. Yeah, these elaborate sets almost overshadowed. And because there was each set was more elaborate than the one that come that come before and you know you, you had to get one set off the stage in order to bring the next set on and it was disjointed it didn't flow and of course the models as well it was all the the house models that that the oh. french couture designers were using a house model in a couture house was clothes horses they were there to model the clothes that was it there was no expression there was no you know kind of movement in the body they were stiff they were robotic you know they had this kind of air of 
superiority about them and it was just so out of touch with what was happening in fashion right. at the time okay so the french had a two and a half hour show in contrast let's talk about the americans <laughs> well the americans had 37 minutes and they they didn't have any sets because the measurements were given wrongly. I think there was a mix-up between the imperial system and of Europe and the kind of metric system of of America or vice versa. Yeah, so the the set arrives in... in, in So the set arrives and it's, yeah, it can't be used. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I I know. I just, you would literally be pulling your hair out, wouldn't you? They have a mixtape, a cassette, with their soundtracks on it. That's crazy. In, in comparison to the French who had a full live orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> it's like press play on the boombox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Press play on the boombox and we're ready to go. They had they had Liza Minnelli open for them, who was the hot ticket at the time. She just won the Oscar for Cabaret. Huge. She was one of Halston's closest friends. Mm-hmm. And she opened the show. It was choreographed by Kay Thompson. So she played Maggie Prescott in uh, Funny Face mm-hmm. with, is it Frank Sinatra and mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn? Mm-hmm. And iconic scene, Think Pink, which is wonderful. The character Maggie Prescott based, of course, on Diana Vreeland. So she was actually co- the choreographer of the, the American presentation. Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. And she actually apparently quit on set when she was at Versailles because of discussions and arguments that were going on with Holston, etc. Apparently Holston stormed out of the rehearsals and took a, a, a diva strop and stormed out of the short rehearsal time that the Americans had. Can you so, imagine? Yeah. Your, your team of five, one leaves and storms out and, and says, we're getting back on the plane, we're going home, we're out. Yeah. And and everyone's like, what? We have a performance. I mean, that was, I think he came back, what, two days later, but that was a big temper tantrum. He did come back. And I think uh, Liza Minnelli was quite instrumental in that. I think she kind of kept oh. everyone's morale up backstage and spoke to everyone. And I think she probably went off and had a little word in Holson's ear. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. probably right. Yeah. So yeah, the Americans got their models dressed. They put some lighting up in the back on the backdrop, and they pressed play on their mixtape, and they just sent their models out there to walk. What was the order of the show? There was a bit of uh, controversy about the order of the show. There was huge kind of to do between Holston and Oscar de la Renta mm. in terms of the the uh, Holston, obviously riding the wave of success wanted to go last because of course that was the coveted position it was the one that everyone would remember oscar de la renta being the veteran obviously he wanted to go last because he was the the, the more established so the the running order of the americans was Anne klein who did this amazing africa collection but stephen burrows went after her and then bill blast went in the middle because bill blast was again another kind of well-established name in american mm-hmm. fashion so he kind of was the anchor in the middle. And then then we had Holston. Then mm-hmm. we had Holston. But Oscar and then Oscar de la Renta went last. And he was a bit sneaky because he was the one who they, the, the running order had actually been decided and Holston was last. And when Oscar de la Renta called Marie Helene de Rothschild to give her the running order, he switched himself and Holston around uh, so that he would be last and Holston would be fourth. 
Well, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, of I, course it does. Yeah, I, I co-sign that. There's a, a huge running theme that steps out to me of one of the main factors and contributors why Team USA killed it is because they had a celebration of blackness in yeah. the show. And, yeah. and it was a consistent dominant thread from starting with Anne Klein, who it was a step out for her to have an African-inspired yep. collection. Yep. Completely so, different to anything that she, to what she was known for. It was completely different. To Stephen Burroughs, who is an African-American designer yep. who celebrates Blackness. Mm-hmm. To Halston, who had Pat Cleveland, an African-American model, twirling down the runway. That's right. To... Oscar de Laurenta, who was the finale, and the music that he used was Barry White, which mm-hmm. was iconic music of the time, spotlighting mm-hmm. another African-American model. I think, what, 10 African-American models? Of- yeah, 36 models in total on the American side, and 10 of them were for African-American, yeah. If you think about the early 70s in the contextual sort of cultural movement at the time, really showcased the American notion that black is beautiful, yeah. which they did that very powerfully and they in a did. way that was very strong. Yeah, they did. These designers and their collections, their, their choice of models, they hadn't seen women like this before modeling fashion. They were beautiful girls and the way that they moved right. on the stage, it was just completely different. Pat Cleveland was known for doing this kind of spinning move where she would just go spin across the stage in this kind of flurry of fabric and everyone was like kind of gasping oh my god is she going to spin off the edge of the stage and she would stop just at the edge keeping everyone on their seats and it was just these beautiful women and these amazing dresses and it was there was it was like no frills it was just completely about the fashion and about the girls who were wearing the clothes it's interesting because i think you're absolutely right and so you have these interplays of this idea of newness you have african-american models put in prominent positions and in elegance and beauty and body was shown there was a sensuality of these models if the audience was mostly French, sensuality and sex is a big sort of cultural undertone to who the French are and what they identify with. So they understood and appreciated an exposed yeah. breast. They liked that. And they hadn't seen that before in this level yeah. of fashion in a couturier house, which is yeah. you know, very much a bourgeoisie, you know, sort of stuffy in a that, lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, these American designers, they were not couture designers. They were ready to wear designers, right. you know. And like, couture was high fashion. And the French prided themselves in that and then these Americans came along and everything that went against the Americans worked in their favour in the end and it just was their evening and even down to the time that they had 37 minutes in comparison to two and a half hours they were able to get their message across it it changed everything It, it, it changed everything this entire kind of conversation we've talked about this idea of a battle the idea that Eleanor Lambert had was never to pit them against each other that was something that naturally happened that evolved because and it evolved for obvious reasons like that we've spoke about the kings of couture 
competing against American registerware designers. Right. You know, just it, it evolved and we now call it the Battle of Versailles. And one of the reasons why we call it that is because at the end of the event, it was clear who the winner was. Mm. The Americans, it was a rapturous applause. I mean, you know, th there were standing ovations. There was rapturous applause. There was, you know, they, they'd never seen anything like this before. It was just so fresh. Right. It, an authentic sort of emotional... 100% authentic yeah it yeah. was original it was authentic it was something they'd never seen before it's rawness was endearing stripping it all back to just the basics as I think what really yeah with the fashion and the woman and the woman exactly yeah Thank and you. women French women started to seek out American designers to wear. They started buying from American designers like Holston right. and they, they then started wearing their designs. And well, it really did change American fashion. It really put American fashion on the map. Ready, it put ready to wear on a par with couture, you know, in terms right. of its kind of creativity and what could actually be done. In, in the same year, in 1973, because you had in, in, in Paris, well, in France, you had the Chambre Syndicale de Prêt-à-Porter that was headed up by Pierre Berger, Yves Saint Laurent's partner, once his romantic partner, and then after that was over, they were business partners for life. And obviously with Yves Saint Laurent being one of the kind of pioneers of ready-to-wear, Pierre Berger was really kind of... He thought that ready-to-wear was the future, and, and rightly so. And you also had the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture, who was headed up by Madame Grey. And in the same year, in 1973, those two organisations actually merged in mm. France to become the Fédération Française de la Couture, de Prêt-à-Porter and Créateurs de Mode. So that, that was kind of like the, the French Fashion Federation, this kind of merging of both societies Prêt-à-Porter and Haute Couture and I think that's quite symbolic as well that it happened in the same year that the Battle of Versailles happened because I think it really it closed the gap I would perhaps it didn't make them equals but it certainly closed the gap between the attitudes that people had towards Prêt-à-Porter towards ready-to-wear and towards Couture. Yeah, and I think it also really solidified the notion of class being an outdated model of, you know, the notion of elitism and exclusivity and being uh, removed from, from society in the sense that you were buffered because yeah. the Americans came in and told stories that were relevant of what was happening in, in culture and society at the moment. And that was a reflection that carried all the way through. Yeah, and, and a lot of the French designers, Yves Saint Laurent in particular, started using a large uh, proportion of black models in their shows after the Battle of Versailles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know. So the impact of diversity. Yeah, in... of course it did. Yeah. What happened then? What happened from the 70s? I often wonder this myself, and I'm not entirely sure what actually happened but sometime around the late 80s diversity just went out the window it just went out the window and i'm not sure whether it was potentially something to do with late 80s early 90s we start getting this kind of grunge look what was it heroin chic you know this waif like figure and 
because the, the models in the 70s and the 80s, they were curvy. They had curves. They had beautiful yeah. bodies. And I, I don't know whether it's got something to do with the biology of a woman's body and perhaps in terms of black models didn't fit that ideal that became fashionable. And did is that what made diversity in terms of modelling go kind of go out the window? I don't well, even, I, I don't know. Even when people talk about the 90s, often uh, curvy women, plus size women, women of color are left out of the 90s conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're it's, right. It's all about the wave, the grunge, and grunge was yeah. such a small part of the 90s. That was not a major yeah. influential player of the 90s. <laughs> Black was a huge part of the 90s. What yeah. about hip hop? Yeah, exactly. That was the birth of J-Lo. And that was transitioned from a subculture to mainstream. I mean, there was a lot of blackness happening. Yeah, there was. But for some strange reason, the fashion industry just didn't embrace it. They still don't embrace it. No, no, you're you're right. You go back to the 90s and it's almost like, well, that's separate. When you say that's separate, that's a a non-inclusive conversation. The 70s are so powerful. The battle over size is so powerful to me because a huge part of the victory is that the conversation was inclusive. Visibility, really. Visibility. Yeah, visibility. Yeah. Working women, women in general, with Anne Klein being the only female uh, at black women 10 of the 36 models being african-american right. you know it was about yeah visibility diversity and That's embracing right. our differences and it, it was just it was a wonderful time as a fashion historian i've always been drawn to the 80s because of the kind of glamour and the glitz and a lot of people think it's gaudy and disgusting and we should forget the 80s ever happened I love the 80s for that particular reason I think that kind of exaggeration of proportion kind of has an ugliness about it that's really endearing that I'm quite drawn towards Mm -hmm. however I'd always overlooked the 1970s and my favourite since yeah since starting my youtube channel and doing an episode on fashion and disco and getting into events like the battle of versailles reading about clubs like studio 54 looking at designers like stephen burrows and holston i've really started to love the 70s it was was just so glamorous and it was that last age of innocence before the, the, the AIDS epidemic in the early 80s. But it was just, it was like the last gasp almost of innocence before yeah. everything just went dark. Yeah. And well, it's just such an amazing era in fashion. And it's a decade now that I really hold dear and I'm absolutely obs- a little bit obsessed with now <laughs> in terms of like researching <laughs> and looking into and, and reading about because it's just, it's, it's a wonderful period in fashion. It really is. It's really rich. And I'm so glad that we could talk about two of our most obsessed decades that we yeah. love to talk about because it's been really a joy. Thank you, Zara. I hope everyone tunes into your YouTube channel. I do too. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Unbiased Label Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, then please connect with us on social media, tell a friend, and leave a review. Please tune in next time for more conversation on fashion and culture from a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. Until next time, stay well.